0: Hello and welcome to the Liz Earl Wellbeing Show. I'm Liz Earl and I will be speaking with leading experts and familiar faces from the whole world of wellbeing to bring you wellness wisdom you can really trust. From fitness to gut health, mood to menopause, you'll quickly learn how to spot a gem of wellness wisdom from a passing fad. Now, I have just had the most fascinating conversation about climate change, food, farming and so much more with Patrick Holden, CBE, a British farmer and global activist doing brilliant work to campaign for sustainable farming. Now, he led the Soil Association for 15 years, playing a leading role in the development of the UK organic market. And we chatted about the early origins of the organic movement, the importance of healthy soil. That's its name, isn't it? And why the cheapest foods on supermarket shelves really aren't that cheap at all. And like me and so many others, if you endeavor to eat in a way that's both healthy and sustainable, then this really is the episode for you. Patrick is the real deal. He knows it all. And I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on our conversation over on Instagram. Do leave me a comment after the show. Don't forget, if you like to watch Patrick and me chatting, you will also find this interview on the Liz Earl Wellbeing YouTube channel. Do tune in. And without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. So, Patrick, I am so thrilled that you are here, that you've made time because you are just everywhere. You're on every airwave, on the TV channels, talking about food, farming, sustainability, regenerative agriculture, all the things that are so front of mind at the moment.
2: Well, uh, we're doing our best, but I think our voice is needed because in the debate, there's a great deal of confusion around the question, which I think is at the back of everyone's minds today. What should I eat to be healthy and sustainable?
0: You're absolutely right. Now, you and I go back a long way. We should just say we've known each other for
2: maybe 25 years,
0: 25 years. Yeah. Back
2: to when I was running the Soil Association, I think it was probably in the 90s when we met. It might have been the 80s, but I think it was probably the 90s. It
0: may well have been 80s because I started writing about food and well-being and nutrition and beginning to be interested in the organic movement long before I became an organic farmer but just as a bystander and just wanting to be an advocate for something that was so clearly, obviously, the right way to go.
2: I remember when we first met, you said you wanted to become an organic farmer.
0: Did I really say that? You did. And now I am. I mean, for the last 12 years. And it's been a very interesting journey because I now understand more. I don't understand it all, but I understand more of what it's like to be a farmer and to cope with the complexities of DEFRA, and soil health and all the rest of it that comes into it, which is so important when you're trying to eat from farm to fork, as we talk about now, that whole kind of process. But let's rewind a little bit. Your history. Did you grow up in a farming family?
2: I did not. I'm a Londoner. Are Uh, you? I grew up in Dulwich and then Hadleywood. My (laughs) father was training to be a doctor and he eventually became a child psychiatrist. But along the road, we moved a lot because that's what doctors do when they're training. And one of my most important childhood episodes was a year in a Hertfordshire village in the 50s. So this was pre-agricultural intensification. And I had the wildest of times just roaming around collecting bird's eggs because you could, it was legal then, and chloroforming butterflies. And I think (laughs) I made no impact whatsoever on the biodiversity because it was just so profuse. And what was interesting was I, I witnessed food production in harmony with nature. Yeah. And that has all disappeared subsequently. Mm. And rather like a frog in water that you heat gently, those of us that weren't around at that time might not realise that what we've lost. Yeah. So I bore witness to another age when there was biodiversity in harmony with nature and food production i believe that's what's to come got to come back and because i farmed all my life since i left london and got back to the land as a so hippie so you literally
0: went so you went you went from college as a hippie is that right well was that, was my, that your journey
2: my dad was posted up to the san francisco bay area to Stanford university at a, a very important time 1970-71 so I kind of went out there and drunk a bit of Kool-Aid, metaphorically speaking, of course, and came <laughs> he's, back he's what? 20. right? And yeah. I came back convinced that we were on the edge of an ecological breakdown. And the sensible thing to do was to form a, a commune uh, with my friends and get back to the land and live happily ever after farming in harmony with nature. And that's actually what we did. But I, before I did that, I needed to train, obviously, and get a little bit of experience in agriculture. So I studied biodynamic farming at a college in Sussex. Did you? And I also got a job on a, an intensive dairy farm in Hampshire for a year. And that was my training.
0: Wow. So the intensive dairy farming compared to biodynamic farming. I mean, polar opposite, are we talking?
2: Yeah, but... Farming is still farming, and I probably learned as much on the intensive dairy farm. I say intensive, it was only relatively intensive in those days. But I learned as much in that year as I did and have probably in any one year subsequently by just practice. Mm. And I think what's missing from all this debate amongst all the NGO community and all the other academics who are producing all these reports is that very few of them actually have any experience of practical farming. Yeah, farming. yeah. Yeah, that's why it's important that our voice is heard because yes. we're the voice of practice and sustainable practice, and that's been missing.
0: Well, you not only have a long history, obviously, as an amazing farmer, but you then went on to lead the Soil Association and it grew from, I mean, under your leadership, it grew from what, how many staff to the size when you left,
2: was Well, huge. when I first joined the council, which is 1981, um, I think there were three or four people employed, and they were still based in suffolk which is where lady e balfour founded it yeah at her farm actually um, and then uh, a chap a great friend of mine called peter seger he also joined the council and we started sort of shaking things up we were known as the young turks by the you know the sort of old guard How brilliant and we were disruptors really mm-hmm. because we had the audacious idea of developing a market for sustainably produced food because until then it was more of a philosophy than a marketplace
0: so you didn't go to the supermarket and buy organic food as such
2: there was there were there were hardly any organic products out there there were no livestock standards there were embryonic standards for vegetables Mm. but we realized that we needed to make a living if we wanted to put our principles into practice we'd have to develop a separate market because at that time if you farmed and produced grain and milk in an intensive way you've got a guaranteed price for every litre or ton that you produced whereas we were trying to farm in harmony with nature, not using any chemicals. Mm. We pretty soon found out that you couldn't make as much money that way. So we had this bright idea of developing a separate market, which meant we had to define the standards of production. They were the organic standards. And it was assigned to me to write what became the world's first draft of the organic dairy farming standards.
0: So you are pretty much the the godfather of organic food in in our
2: supermarket. no? No, the organic movement predated my birth uh lady eve balfour the founder of the soil association uh, she was the niece of prime minister balfour mm. and she read a book by a man called sir albert howard who'd been inspired by the agriculture of the hunza valley now part of pakistan in northwest india in the early part of the 20th century and he because he realized he was a british scientist knighted for his services to agricultural research, sent out at the height of the empire to teach the Indian farmers how to adopt Western methods. And when he got there, he had the humility to realise that they knew more than he did. So he stayed there for 35 years studying their agriculture.
0: Wow, and he brought that back. He
2: brought it back and he wrote a book called An Agricultural Testament, which was published in 1940, which was his homage to the Indian farmers that he referred to as his professors. Isn't and,
0: that amazing? I didn't know that.
2: And. That led to Lady E. Balfour setting up the Soil Association. And for the first 30 years, I wasn't involved at all. And then at the end of the 70s, because we were farming by then, I became interested in their work. And Mm. Lady Eve's original idea was that that it was necessary to build a body of informed public opinion about the link between farming practice, food quality and human health. Mm. she was absolutely right and there's still a lot of work to do today yeah. and that's probably part of the reason why why it's good that we're discussing this
0: absolutely and it's very interesting that it's called the soil association it's not the food association or the organic association because it starts with the soil doesn't it
2: exactly albert howard said that the health of soil plants animals and people is one and indivisible so if we want to promote the health of the plants then we need to First, look after the biological health of the soil yeah. and so on down the chain. And we are, as it were, what we eat. Yes, or
0: what yes, what exactly what we are. I mean, I often say that actually, it's not only what we are what we eat, but we are what we eat has eaten.
2: Exactly. And that goes back to the soil, which is the yeah. stomach of the plant. Yes, yeah, so the food of, for
0: the plant. So whatever you feed your plants is going to end up in the plant.
2: Exactly. Like whatever
0: we feed ourselves is going to help or not or hinder how we develop as humans.
2: Yes. And the soil, the plants have this incredible symbiotic relationship with a community of bacteria and fungi uh, that exist in their root zones. And they spend a third of their photosynthetic energy exuding sugary sap to nourish these organisms because they cannot digest the organic matter in the soil without them. And that is the equivalent, if you think about it, of our stomach. We depend in our own stomachs on a community of bacteria which coexist with us Mm. and outnumber the number of cells in our body for our digestion. It's the same with plants, except their stomach is externalised. It it is the soil.
0: In the roots. And by putting back into the soil, they are fertilising the soil with their own microbes And then, I mean, we can come on and talk about things like nitrogen fixes in the soil with clovers and and obviously ruminant animals and all of that. But it is so interesting, isn't it, that the attention finally, I think, is turning to the soil and soil erosion and carbon capture and all of those things that are so important in the soil. So when you left the Soil Association, how big was it? It had gone from four to how many?
2: About 200. That's amazing. uh, Yes, it was a, a period of great growth and the market was, I think it peaked in 2008 Uh, At around two point six five billion, and since then it's declined. Billion, Billion, yes. So it went from a quarter of a million or something like that to two point six billion, and then that coincided with the recession um, because of the lack of public understanding about the reasons why it was a good thing to support organic food in the marketplace and organic farming, Mm -hmm. plus the the apparently high cost discrepancy between normal. Conventional food and organic mm. food—the market actually declined. It's now back to growth, but uh, it did decline for some years. Yeah, I'd and like to say after I left the sort association, but I think that was not—that's not really the.
0: Well, reason. I mean, I've I've sat in conferences uh, with you and others working in this area, and it's interesting that you talk about the cost of food, because of course what we don't seem to be doing is accounting for the true cost. You know, much of our intensively produced food is subsidised and we pay higher water rates, for example, to clear up the water courses because they've been so polluted with pesticide runoffs and nitrates and all of that. And I know that's something that you've been working on because you're now, you left the Soil Association to found the Sustainable Food Trust.
2: That's right. I felt uh, there are a number of circumstances which led to my decision to leave. But one of them was that by developing a separate market for sustainably produced food, there were some unintended consequences. We polarised the farming community. Those that weren't farming organic felt as if we were somehow demonising them. And we were separating the two communities. That wasn't desirable. But I think there's another factor which has become much more pressing today, which is that we now know that unless we transform the whole of the world's food systems to more sustainable production, we're going to tip into irreversible climate change. So now the project is not to transform a niche market Mm. and a small percentage of agriculture, It's the whole of agriculture. And for that, we need a new approach, a more inclusive approach and a a bigger vision. And the Sustainable Food Trust, which is only a small organisation, probably about a 10th of the size of the Soil Association, uh, is working catalytically to bring together people in leadership positions throughout the world, but also in the UK, to to see if we can accelerate a change that is trying to happen, but is being held back. Mm -hmm. And as you rightly say, one of the key reasons for that is the absence of true cost accounting in other words when we look at so called cheap food in the supermarket today it appears cheap but in reality there are hidden costs associated with its production which are not on the price label and we're here but we're
0: paying for them anyway
2: we're paying for them in hidden ways we produced a report which you can download from our website called the hidden costs of uk food and the headline conclusion of it is that every for every pound you spend on food in a shop there's another hidden pound in damage to the environment, destruction of soil, biodiversity, uh, nitrates getting into the watercourses, and mm. damage to public health, which is split 50 50 between damage to the environment and public health. Which, if mm. you factored that in, would make the food not cheap at all, but actually rather expensive. But because we don't see that, The temptation is to buy the cheaper food, even though these hidden costs are actually being paid for, as you say, already in our taxes or in other ways.
0: Yeah, it does seem like you are trying to move an enormous boulder up a very steep hill when you talk about changing global agriculture. How optimistic are you that these things are achievable?
2: I am quite optimistic, actually, because I think the climate change community have finally realised that if we are to avoid a reversible climate change, Uh, agriculture is in the front line of what needs to be uh, addressed. And I'm saying that because uh, a woman called Vandana Shiva, Dr. Vandana Shiva, who's a great Indian campaigner, uh, said in a talk that I heard the other day, that whereas it used to be the rainforests and the areas of pristine wilderness, that were the lungs and the digestive system of the planet. Now, because we've destroyed so much of that natural habitat, it is the farms of the world that are its lungs and its 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 stomach, if you like, mm. as we just said. And if the patient is sick, and I'm afraid global agriculture is sick, then the planet is sick and we are sick. Mm. And that's the truth of the situation we find ourselves in. So we have to transform our food and farming systems. We now have the support of the climate change community. And I think more and more people involved, for instance, with public health, who are facing health service treatment costs, which are threatening to bankrupt our country, are beginning to realise that actually the primary contributor to public health is a healthy agriculture. And we need to make these connections and get out of our silos.
0: Yeah. Well, it's certainly healthy food and making those choices. And, you know, we'll come on and we'll talk about the meat versus plant based debate in a moment. But I'd like to stay with soil and agricultural practices for the moment one of the things that's annoyed me and when i look on twitter and which i do periodically and there are a lot of vocal people talking for both sides of the debate here is that there doesn't seem to be any separation or reference to the type of agriculture because all farming as you pointed out is not the same Exactly. and it can be vastly different and in some areas you can be capturing carbon in the soil and you know by using grazing animals for example and in other areas you know, releasing huge amounts of it and eroding it and cutting down rainforests to grow soya. So can you give us just a a snapshot overview here between the good guys and the bad guys?
2: Well, as you rightly say, we need to differentiate between the farming systems and the food products which are part of the problem uh, and those which are part of the solution. So in a way, we have to become expert in this. And that Mm. might sound challenging, but we can make the a uh, description of the changes that are necessary and the actions we need to take simple. Because it is quite simple and we are all extremely interested in this because yeah. we all eat. We all eat. eat
0: and we all want to have a planet
2: to live on. Exactly. So there's rather a lot hanging on yeah. this. So, so we, what
0: are your top line points that we should adopt as consumers?
2: Well, we've been in a chapter of agriculture which has involved, it's really been an asset stripping operation, an asset stripper of nature, of nature's capital, Uh, We've now got our soil carbon levels down to critical low points. The biodiversity from which used to coexist, as I just described, has gone. Uh, We're polluting the atmosphere with greenhouse gases from agriculture. And we're using pesticides which are uh, contaminating our water and also damaging our health. And that chapter of chemically-based agriculture has to end. And it needs to give way to a new chapter based on biology, not chemistry. And that involves the regeneration of the natural capital that we've destroyed. And I can say, because I've been farming that way for over 40 years, that the system Mm -hmm. does work and it could feed the world, but we would have to adjust our diets accordingly to align them, our future diets with Mm. the productive capacity of the sustainable farming systems, which need to replace the industrial ones that we have at the moment. And in that question, is probably another bit of our discussion so in yes. other words what should we eat mm. if we were to align our future diets assuming that we are not of course some people are going vegan and vegetarian then that's fine if you've got ethical objections but i would contest that you don't need to do that but you do need to be discerning about yes. which livestock products you eat
0: so which are the good ones and i have to hold my hat up here i have a vested interest i am a grass-fed farmer pasture farmer um, and I do passionately believe in regenerative agriculture and capturing carbon in the soil by grazing animals and having you know ruminants, especially in the UK, we don't have the landscape do we to to grow acres and acres of arable crops. I mean it just doesn't it just doesn't work like that in some countries they do, but certainly in the UK we don't. Um, yeah. And they are very. They seem very efficient, you know. You have sheep in the field who eat grass and turn that into something that we can't eat, while they're capturing carbon in the soil and regenerating it into something that we can. With very, there's no input. I mean, certainly on our farm, we don't feed our sheep anything other than the grass that grows out of the ground. Very occasionally, a little bit of hard feed if the winter's very hard, but but you know that's very rare.
2: Yes, I think you're onto something important here, which is the grain production it's actually quite ecologically expensive. You know, if you plough the fields and sow them with, cultivate the seedbeds, sow them with grain and then wait and harvest them with a combine, there's a lot of fossil fuel involvement and a lot of activity. And when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, the grain which came from those systems, which were part of mixed farming, as I described, uh, were quite expensive. So a chicken was a treat that we had once a month Um, because uh, a grain fed uh, chicken uh, came from that relatively expensive farming system. Whereas the staple meat was grass fed lamb and beef because that was actually cheaper to produce for the reasons you've just described. But unfortunately because of chemistry and the uh, use of herbicides and pesticides and fungicides and nitrogen fertilizer, we've vastly increased the output of grains, but we've done so at the expense of the soil and the environment, but the price on the grain has been cheap, and that has meant that you can go into a supermarket and buy a chicken for whatever it is, uh, yeah, four pounds a, yeah, or three I mean, pounds it's, fifty it's, it's or absolutely, something.
0: It's crazy. And am I right in saying that it takes—is it five kilos of grain to produce one kilo of chicken?
2: It's That's even less of, than that now. Is it? Yes. Uh, and the point is that uh, argument are uh, people who argue in favour of chicken consumption as opposed to beef consumption mm. will say, well, it's very efficient because the birds grow so quickly these days. Yeah. But actually, if you factor in the damage that's done in the soya production, for instance, which is, you know, part of the destruction of the Brazilian rainforest yeah, to
0: feed the chickens. and all the
2: pesticides mm. and also the welfare implications. Yeah, and terrible the, of a
0: fast growing chicken, the battery farmed, intensively reared.
2: And also the fat composition of the chickens. In fact, grass-fed lamb and beef is, has got a far better balance of omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids than uh, industrial chicken production. That's you crazy, put all that together, yeah. you look at the antibiotics, which yes. are used as growth promoters or disease suppressants in equal measure, Yeah. and it's just an unsustainable system. And if we really saw how horrendous it was, mm-hmm. with you know cameras in the sheds and everything, yeah. we wouldn't want to eat it. No, and yet. More and more of us are eating chicken. And I was just in a, a, a cafe talking to some people from one of the conservation organizations this afternoon. And I said to the woman I was talking to her, if we did a, a, a sort of, um, you know, survey of all the young people sitting in this cafe and said, if I said to them, do you eat meat? And if they said they weren't vegetarian or vegan, and they mm. said, yes, I'd say, well, which do you think is the least bad meat to eat if you've got a bit of a conscience about climate change, etc., yeah. etc.' they would all say chicken. They think that if they're going to eat a meat at all, it would be chicken, yeah. because that's what's come across from all the recent debate in the press about the right meat to eat, because it's claimed that there are lower emissions from chicken than there are from, say, uh, grass-fed beef animals. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that. But in fact, the right meat to eat, if you want to be healthy and sustainable, is grass-fed ruminant meat. That means lamb or beef or possibly dairy products from mainly grass-fed animals, mm. which are what I do on my farm. Yeah. And that message has not got across to the public at no, all. No,
0: and, and, and chicken's got a very kind of healthy image and, and a very sort of clean wrap, if you like. And similarly for, for pork, is that is that being fed a lot of hard feed?
2: I'm afraid pork's an, another dreadful story. All is the, it All the intensive pigs that yeah. are reared these days are all grain fed, soya and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, they are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. It is possible to have delicious, healthy pork. It yeah. should be fed on, as it were, leftovers or waste and part of the circular economy. So you try to feed pigs on, what well, it used to be swill. Yes, but from products schools
0: and places like that. Back our, in the day, when you were la- allowed.
2: Yeah, or whey from a cheesemaking operation. That's what we do with oh, our right, house okay. pigs. Yeah. They love whey, they mm. go mad for whey. Do they? And the native breeds, which are very good at putting on fat, and of course the, the flavours in the fat, yeah. which have all sort of gone out of fashion since this ridiculous trend towards lean meat uh, yeah. became mainstream.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, they uh, basically are the best way to produce really delicious pork and again that ought to be quite expensive and a treat but it absolutely should form part of a a sustainable diet but once again we have to differentiate between the industrial pig systems where the pigs never get outside and they're dreadfully treated Mm. and we should give up eating that pork altogether and the chicken and Mm. instead switch our loyalty to the farm animals which are absolutely necessary and part of a sustainable farming system.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Why are beef and lamb, you know, sheep, why are cows and sheep so important on the land? Why is it important to have pasture grazing at all?
2: Well, One interesting statistic is that two thirds of the whole farmed land area of the United Kingdom is grassland and much of that grassland could not grow crops. For instance, on my farm in Wales, it's steep and it rains a lot and the soils are fragile. And we do have a a rotation where we do grow some crops. We used to grow carrots and we still grow grain, but we can only probably grow those arable crops two years in seven. And so for the rest of the time, the other five years of the rotation, it's grass. So if we want to produce food from Wales, from the grasslands of Wales, that means either dairy cows or beef animals or sheep. And for the farmers in the Arable East, so now if you drive as I, I went on a train today from Northampton down to London, mm. it was just wall to wall arable crops. And Back in the 50s, that was still mixed farming because they were not using nitrogen fertilizer and pesticides, yeah. so they had to have a crop rotation. And all the arable farmers in the East now are reporting that their soils are dead yeah. and they've got no organic matter left in them. And they're looking at what to do about that. And we are saying to them, well, what you need to do is to go back into a mixed farming system with a crop rotation of fertility building phase and all the rest of it. And they're saying, well, why would I do that when Everybody is giving up eating red meat. And if I did that, I wouldn't make any money out of half of my rotation. So we are saying, yes, unfortunately, you're right. So the challenge is to communicate to the public uh, about the difference between the unsustainable meat, which is the chicken and the pork, Mm. and the sustainable meat, which is the grass-fed beef and lamb, which is absolutely necessary for those arable farmers to go back into a regenerative farming system. And... If we support them by buying their products in the marketplace, then they can make the change that's necessary to address climate change. Mm.
0: And this is literally capturing carbon in the soil. It is making a tangible difference when we talk about greenhouse gases and emissions. So I know cows get a bad rap because people say, oh, they just release methane and they're contributing to climate change, but actually they are capturing more in the soil. Isn't that
2: right? It is right. Um, it's been estimated that if all the world's uh, cropping soils were sh- to shift back to a proper sustainable farming rotation, which involved fertility bonding with clover and grass or other leguminous crops, we could probably take up to 100 parts per million of CO2 out of the atmosphere and re it in the soil carbon bank. And that is the only area where addressing climate change could actually reverse Uh, the greenhouse gas emissions which we've contributed to through the through the burning of fossil fuels so this is a really exciting story that's
0: phenomenal and that's with cows
2: with cows and sheep
0: cows and sheep we do that
2: (laughs) and let's just sort of deal with the methane issue because it is true that ruminant animals cows and sheep do emit methane but that is part of an ancient cycle that's been around as long as there were herbivores on the planet. And you, if you look at some of the most fertile soils in the world, the soils of the Great Plains, for instance, in America, the Corn Belt, they were all built with an interaction of bison and grassland. So millions of herbivores uh, roamed these great prairies, uh, ate the grass, dunged and urinated yeah, on it, made trampled anything. on it. And yeah. emitted methane, which yeah. has a short life, only twelve or thirteen years, and then yeah. it degrades. That's all but part they were of capturing
0: the... you know, they were capturing the carbon in the soil. And if they were doing this thousands of years ago, way before climate change,
2: and yes. there were millions of them. And it was <laughs> it's it's part of an old carbon cycle. Right. The new methane is fossil fuel derived, I'm yeah. afraid. And the inconvenient truth is that we've demonized livestock, possibly to salve our consciences about our mm. Expensive flying and travelling habits and I'm part of that too. We're yeah. all part but of it. But the emissions
0: there are way, way more.
2: They are. And we we yeah. the truth is we have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Yeah. It's gonna be painful. But that's the really big change yeah. that needs to happen. Yeah.
0: I'm interested in the whole plant based debate here because when we look at it from an agricultural point of view, if you have got these vast prairies, whether you're talking about the east of England or the prairies in the Midwest or wherever in America, then you are and I've seen the video footage of the, the combine harvesters, the fertilizers, the plowing that's going up of the topsoil. Every time you're plowing a field, presumably you are releasing the carbon that's been captured there. Yes, it's just going up into the environment. So surely growing plants is far more destructive when you talk about climate change than sequestering carbon by having grazing animals on it.
2: Well, regenerative agriculture can rebuild soil carbon And that I would say is a process which is going to heal some of the damage we've done to the soils.
0: So we can rebuild it with the animals.
2: Yes, and no, it would be wrong to suggest that agriculture is a zero sum game. You know, I mean, obviously, if you rewilded the whole of the planet, mm. this would probably be the most dramatic way to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. But then unfortunately- We wouldn't have anything to eat. human come lately, <laughs> wouldn't have a lot to eat. <laughs> okay. so, so we have to somehow strike a balance. Yeah. And the question is, can we strike a balance by producing mm. food, working in harmony with nature? Mm. And I can report back from the farm that this is possible because yeah. we've been doing it and we, we, we could get so much better at doing it. I mean, we've yeah. been farming over 40 years in our farm in West Wales. Mm-hmm. I still feel that I've learned things about soil uh, grazing management, holistic grazing, mm-hmm. just in the last few years that make me realize I'm just at the beginning of what can be achieved. Yeah. So, if we set ourselves the task of adopting regenerative agriculture globally and locally, and mm-hmm. we are loyal to the farmers that we need to support by yeah. buying their products, preferably near to where we live then the yep. world could change. And this yep. is a story of hope.
0: Well, I really hope so. And I'm an ambassador for Love British Food. So I'm, I'm very much about supporting British farmers. And I live in a farming community on an active working farm. So it, it is a subject very close to my heart. And I get very annoyed, particularly when people throw in brickbats about methane emissions, for example, and, and demonising cows, when producing rice produces five times more methane not to mention the nitrous oxide that comes from the the paddy fields. I mean, but we don't think about that when we tuck into our, you know, veggie dishes that are full of rice. Oh, this is bad for the environment.
2: That's right. And I think, you know, in uh, discussing and arriving at a conclusion about what we should eat to be sustainable and healthy, we should be as rigorous in our scrutiny about plants as we are about animals. Oh,
0: completely. I mean, your your point about local eating, I mean, if you are going to be plant based or, or, you know, vegan, vegetarian and have more plants, it it seems to me is very dominated by things like avocados imported, quinoa imported, beans, Californian almonds imported. Was it one liter of water to produce one almond? Exactly. Not to mention the hundreds of thousands of bees that they kill in the process each year.
2: If we were deriving 80% of our dietary fats from animals at the beginning of the 20th century. That's a staggering figure, isn't it? I still can't get over that. Yeah, and now it's reversed. Then we have to ask ourselves, where are the plant fats coming from? And if they're coming from unsustainable systems, then we need to be as tough on that as we are on livestock. So it's all very well saying, eat less, but better meat. Well, that's fine, but we should eat we should apply the same principle to plants. Which plants should we eat? We should eat the plants which are grown near to us in a sustainable way, which Mm. can nourish us. Mm. And that leads me to another point, which is that I just learned a couple of weeks ago that some people, farmers in New England, uh, second generation organic farmers, interestingly enough, have come across and developed a spectrometer, which is used for measuring the the elemental content of planets and distant stars, which have now been developed in an app on an Android phone which mm. can analyse the nutrient density of food.
0: Oh, I love that. So we can take this app to the food store and see what nutrients it contains.
2: Well, they did exactly that. They took some oh, carrot seed. Oh my goodness,
0: that's amazing.
2: They, they sent, <laughs> I think they got a kilogram of carrot seed and they yeah. sent it to a hundred carrot growers of varying you know, types. So some of them were intensive, some were organic. And they said, grow this carrot seed and send the carrots back to us. And then they use this device which i haven't yet seen but we've ordered one i think it's seven hundred dollars <laughs> on an android phone um and they analyzed the nutrient differences between the various counts of the different systems and apparently there were staggering differences in the nutrient content because we we're all mm. urged to eat five a day as if that was you know the, the thing that you could do to transform your health turns out that the changes in vegetable production practice, which have taken place again during my farming lifetime, Mm. have compromised the nutrient density of just about all the vegetables we buy in supermarkets. It's very difficult. If you go to a supermarket today and you try to buy good vegetables, I would say it's virtually impossible. If you've got an organic range, they'll definitely be better. But the changes in farming practice have really diminished the nutrient, the micronutrient content of all the vegetables. That's and, so
0: fascinating. And
2: if you buy salads now in a UK yeah. supermarket, they will no longer be grown in soil. Any of them. What? So if you if you buy lettuce, peppers. So
0: where are their nutrients coming from then?
2: They're all grown hydroponically in rock wool in a nutrient solution of nitrogen and phosphate and and the other key essential micronutrients, which are just diluted in water. So you, it's rather like feeding a patient with a stomach tube. We we bypass the soil. And of course, there are going to be long term nutritional consequences from that. But I think what is really exciting about this tool is it may empower us to start to measure the food productivity in a new way, nutrition per acre, not just yield per acre. And that would empower uh, citizens in their role as consumers to use their buying power in a new way. Because Mm. I think the supermarkets, I mean, I'll be absolutely honest you go to a supermarket these days knowing what we know Mm. and you try to buy good food it's it's very difficult it's
0: tough it's very
2: difficult i mean there are you know i buy organic milk i go Mm. down to my local Mm. small scale supermarket and you know when i'm desperate which i often am you know because we're like that yeah for sure and i try to buy something which is i think it's okay and you know i might get some smoked mackerel or something like that and reluctantly buy some fruit and vegetables because I know it's not very nutrient rich and I'll get some organic milk and things like that but then I run out but everything else is just heavily processed and degraded the bread's probably rubbish because supermarkets don't sell good bread
0: no and even I mean I was doing a, a podcast recently on the scandal of sourdough and about how the labeling regulations are being engineered so that it doesn't have to be real sourdough at all, and it can still be called sourdough. I mean, the whole, it's the whole thing is such a minefield.
2: It is, but actually, uh, once again, we need to be discerning. We need to yeah. understand what the sourdough process is yes. and why slow bread. We're making slow cheese on our farm. Uh, are makes you the, about
0: slow cheese?
2: Well, it's it's the equivalent, really, of sourdough um, because most modern cheddars are made using very aggressive, fast-acting bacteria. Uh, which then enable the cheddar makers to make a cheese in perhaps just two or three hours. Whereas if you put a a culture with more diversity into the milk and you put less of it in the milk and you use raw milk, not pasteurised milk, then the process is much slower. And much more gentle and the flavors are much more subtle and complex and you get more of the flavor of the the farm itself the biome of the farm which yeah. stays in the cheese
0: so you get a better beneficial bacteria load in these slower growing sort of almost fermented cheeses
2: yes it is it's, it is fermentation it's yeah. exactly that and of course we now know that sourdough bread is much healthier for us and if you much look at much more the, easy
0: to digest
2: yeah and if yeah. you look at all the rises in gluten intolerance and all the allergies (laughs) Mm. that are so prevalent today. I'm absolutely certain that the cause of this goes back to two things, at least. One is agricultural intensification, and the other is uh, heavy processing of food. And if we were mm. to move towards more, more natural processing methods, including sourdough and slow cheese, and also we were to move back towards rege- to regenerative agriculture, avoiding the use of chemicals, then many of these food intolerances would disappear. And I heard a fascinating story the other day at Malu Cookery School. Great, in Cork, Cork Dorena Allen. Yeah. So Doreena told me just the other day, she's an old friend of mine, she said... Um, we get about 20% of all the pupils who do our 12-week courses at Malu arrive at the school with food intolerances. And with the exception of celiacs, all of them disappear by yeah. the end of the course because all the food that they yeah. cook in their kitchens is grown on their organic farm. Isn't that fascinating? That
0: is fascinating. And it doesn't surprise me because I wrote a book a few years ago called The Good Gut Guide. And I am very anti the rise of free from foods. You know, you go into any supermarket these days, you've got these big aisles, free from gluten, free from lactose, free from this, free from that. And it's like, no, 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 you don't need to be buying free from. You need to work out why your gut is reacting in a way that it is to the modern ultra processed foods that you're eating. And I've just got a little six week plan. And when people follow that, similar to being at the Drina Allen Cookery School, you're eating sourdough bread, which is fermented. You're having your, you know, natural yogurts or your raw milks or whatever, and your gut rebalances, and you can then start eating these foods again. And you know, my niece who is gluten intolerant, she went on that exact program, and now she eats pizza, and whereas before exactly. she was spending a fortune on buying gluten free rubbish.
2: Exactly, and as a dairy farmer, um, it's very interesting. Because in a way one's conducting a, a daily feeding trial which you can't do with people because you know you can't control everything we do or we can't control everything we do whereas with cows you turn the cows into a new field or you give them some hay or silage or whatever you're feeding them and you can observe the impact on their poo of course because Mm. that's their digestive system and cow poo is lovely in what so, way is cow
0: food lovely? Well, it, it's,
2: <laughs> it's, it's, it's vegan. <laughs> so, and it's also, it smells delicious. Does and it? If, if the cows are eating good food. Okay. Uh, yeah. The bacteria are beneficial bacteria. It's yeah. all part of a healthy biome. And what is interesting mm. about our cows is that we're feeding them more or less 100% from the food that is grown on our farm. This yeah. is obviously an ecosystem which has been going for a long time, decades. Mm. And for the last year, we didn't have a single case of mastitis in our dairy cows. Now really, that, if you're a dairy farmer, that's that remarkable. is something. Yeah. And that is to do with yeah. the other health of the cows, which is directly connected with their nutrition. Yeah, And there's something incredibly powerful about yeah. that, that when you witness that the health of a cow, another thing that is always amazes me, if you turn the cows into a field of really good grass and every field is different, it's got a different terroir about it. Mm. You can see within 12 hours of them going into a field with really rich grass, there will be a bloom on their coats and the milk yield will go up. It's that rapid because cows, you know, got kind of a fast forwarded metabolism compared to ours. So yeah. this is like, you're a daily witness to the connection between food quality and health when you milk, when you have the privilege of milking cows, yes. which I still do.
0: Yeah, And connecting that back to the soil. Interesting that you were saying that, that the cows, your cows and grass fed cows are eating virtually everything that's grown in the field. So this myth about the rainforest being cut down to produce soil to feed cows is is not the case. Certainly not for, for British agriculture.
2: There's no reason why our future dairy herd could be could be nourished mainly from the uh, the soil of our lands, including yeah. the grains. So what we you grow your to,
0: own maize if, if you want to feed maize. Well, we're
2: growing a mixture of oats, barley and peas. It used to be called dredged corn in old farming language mm. and we combine it in one. So the we've got a bin full of oats, peas and barley and we mill it on a daily basis so it's freshly milled every day and it looks like
0: gourmet food for your cows
2: (laughs) it does look like muesli (laughs) really the the cows love it Uh, they 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 like the taste of the soil that they live on yeah it's interesting they really go for it so we do buy in organic cake as it's called in dairy farming circles and that's about 50% of the concentrate feed that the cows still eat, although we're trying to go 100% grown mm. on our farm. Mm. But they actually prefer the grains grown on our farm because it, they taste more, you know,
0: That's just homegrown, home like homemade.
2: Yeah. It yeah. tastes and
0: better.
2: It, we don't, these days, we, we, we eat globally, don't we? We go and mm. buy in a supermarket. We don't really know where the food came from. It no, probably sure. comes from all over the world. So we, we're literally consuming the food from a thousand farmers in five different continents almost every day. Yeah. And I think, we don't want to be ideological about it, but I think as a direction of travel, it would be better if a greater proportion of our staple foods was grown from farmers that we know who live and farm near to us. Yeah. And so that should be our commitment as when we buy food, mm. to look for that and to go to a supermarket. Because let's be honest, we are more powerful than the supermarkets. We think the supermarkets are powerful. They're not. They're just slaves to our preferences. So we are the powerful ones. We are the selves. In the food system think of it that way and if enough of us change the supermarkets will have to change because otherwise they will go out of business
0: well i hope you're right patrick because you know i'm hearing a lot there's been a lot of talk from for example the eat lancet study heavily funded by the ultra processed food industry you know you look at all the big players behind that really trying to turn everybody more into plant-based eating and away from this regenerative agricultural form of of buying local foods. And I did an experiment recently where I went keto. So I was just eating high fat, high protein foods and no carbs, no sugars. Brilliant! And I felt amazing on it. I mean, that's a whole nother story. We can discuss that another day because I felt I lost weight. I had great energy and it was my blood fats improved. I mean, it was just an extraordinary experiment. But what was fascinating for me, and I did it for nearly a month, was that during that time I ate nothing out of a packet. Literally nothing. You know, I was eating bacon and eggs for breakfast. I was having my green veggies. I was having, you know, fatty meat and fish and eggs and cream and all of that cheese. But none of it was processed, let alone ultra processed. And of course, that is finding ground within a lot of the health professionals, particularly certain cardiologists and diabetes experts. But seriously, bad news for the big global giants involved in producing food. And there is this kind of conspiracy theory that the whole Eat Lancet debate is being fueled and funded by people who want to sell us more processed foods.
2: Well, I think it's this is what I think about this. I think that some of it, I'm not normally a conspiracy theorist. No, not I not know right. that the Eat Lancet, uh, the, the funding for the Eat Lancet report came from the Wellcome Trust, all of it, actually. Uh, three million pounds it cost wow. and it all came from the welcome trust well of course the welcome trust built their great fortune on drug sales which is you know interesting there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with a foundation being set up by a company that made money but I think that many of the people associated with the eat Lancet report there were 37 authors um and really I would say if we're honest none of them were farmers None of them had knowledge of practice. I mean, Tim Perhaps. Lang, one of the authors, said to me the other day, yeah. I used to be a farmer, but I don't, I don't count that. Okay. I think most of them yeah. were academics, some of whom were probably had some vested interests, yeah. uh, not all, and they were probably well-meaning, but I just think they are so disconnected from the reality of farming practice. And I think that the Eat Lancet, I have to say, I think the Eat Lancet report's done a huge amount of harm because it's it's added to the consumer citizen confusion about what a sustainable diet would look like. They've come up with this ridiculous global diet, as if you could have such a thing as a globalised diet, which would be right. You can't. You Mm -hmm. need to align your diet to the place where you live.
0: Yes, and what you're producing, what your soils are able to produce, what your landscape looks like. We know that our microbiome is very different according to different cultures. We've got different tastes, different ways of eating. That's just ludicrous. Maybe they just wanted to standardise it so they can sell us everything out of the same packet.
2: Well, when you start to drill down, you talk to some of the authors. They say, oh, we didn't agree with this. We didn't agree with that. But the truth is the headline conclusions were you should virtually eat a plant-based diet if you are going to eat meat, it should be four times as much chicken as, as red meat. Oh,
0: for heaven's sake. Uh, How uh, can they say that?
2: Well, they just got it wrong. And then they got the other it, but, thing, but nobody's apologised for it yet. Maybe they will. And the other thing to say, which I just would like to share with you, I don't know if you know about this definition of red meat, but when people describe red meat, what the current definition, which all the nutritionists use, is all ruminant meat, which is uh, lamb and beef, all pork and all processed meat. So they lump all those together and they call them red meat. Well, frankly, that's scientifically illiterate. Yeah. And not only do they have all those different groupings, but they do not differentiate in the red meat which kind of production system it came from. so you could have grain-fed feedlot beef, which is part of the problem. Or you could have grass-fed lamb and beef, which is on your farm and part of the solution. There's no differentiation in there. So frankly, you cannot derive any sound scientific conclusions from a report which uses that definition. This is not just that report. All the scientific community use that definition of red meat. It must be stopped. It's unacceptable. It's sloppy science.
0: Will it be stopped?
2: I think if... You and I and others like us start calling this out. I think it will be stopped.
0: Well, we're calling it out here. Patrick, we could go on. We do have to bring this to a close, but I would love you to come back because I feel that we've just begun to scratch the surface. And I think there is so much really helpful stuff. The takeaway message is really buy local, check provenance, look at the farming methods, take a deeper look into what we're being sold and what we're being told. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. And Remember, we're the powerful ones. It's our health. What we eat can transform the future of farming, uh, avoid irreversible climate change and make us feel really well and part of the solution at the same time.
0: That has to be a brilliant answer. Thank you so much for being with us. And that's it for today's show. As always, you will find all the links, everything we've talked about, the resources mentioned on today's programme over on LizelleWellbeing.com. There you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter, which is jam-packed with sustainable, obviously, and healthy recipes with lots of delicious grass-fed beef and lamb recipes as well, and seasonal veggies and salads and something for everybody. Huge thanks to all of you who've left us such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show. I'm very grateful. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earl Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and hosted by Amarulis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Marignere.